Elon Musk is planning to build his own town on part of the thousands of acres of newly purchased pasture and farmland outside of Texas, the Texas capital. Um, the idea, evidently, is a, a, a utopia where his employees can live and work and and work and and work. And did I mention work? Donald Trump was bragging about deregulation in 2018, everything he could get his hands on. And unfortunately, safety is not something that we should be bargaining with. The Brazilian Ministry of Labor and Employment, MTE, rescued 39 workers, including children, in February from modern slavery in the state of Santa Catarina. Corn workers have always been gig workers. Like other gig workers spent as much time trying to get work as they do actually working, um, insofar as we measure working as, as what's paid. Hey, we're not doctors. We're not lawyers. We're just dealing with dust. He goes, it's just dirt. And we mix it up and we bond it together. And it's concrete cement, right? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, Elon Musk plans to set up a company town. Rick Smith's show reminds us of the dark history of company towns. Then, on America's Workforce Radio, Tim Berga, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, tells us about new legislation to improve safety on the railroads. Next, we go to Brazil for a report on 39 workers rescued from modern slavery on the Solidarity Center podcast. From the Fair Work podcast, a discussion with Heather Berg about how the internet has changed sex work. Our final segment today is from the new season of the America Works podcast, which introduces us to Jude Bejarano, a cement plant worker in Evansville, Pennsylvania. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. And welcome! Brothers, sisters, working class heroes, this is The Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today. Elon Musk is planning to build his own town on part of the thousands of acres of newly purchased pasture and farmland outside of Texas, the Texas capital, according to Deed and other land records and people familiar with the project. Um, the idea, evidently, is a, a, a utopia, a, a Texas utopia along the Colorado River, where his employees can live and work and and work and and work. And did I mention work? Yeah, and work. And work more. Yeah, they, they could live and, and, and work. You know, kind of a utopia, right? <laughs> uh, and, and immediately my mind starts to go to funny places. Like, well, gee, what would he call it? Would it be, you know, Muscatucky? Are we, you know, Stinky Town? I don't know. Is this Muscatan, Muscastan? Uh, a lot of people liked Muskville. Uh, doesn't matter what it is. Elonville? Uh, Muscatuckyistan? I don't know. But if you want to know what it's going to look like, I think we kind of have a good, I think we've already got a really good live living model. 
you know, uh, an Elon Musk statue on every corner and you're, you're ousted if you don't pay homage. I think North Korea is kind of the, 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 the place that, you know, Elonistan would look a lot like. Because you look at the fact that his Twitter impressions went down and he fired an engineer. People weren't looking at his mean tweets, so he fired someone. Can you imagine? Come with me, if you will. Can you imagine the soft ego and, because, hey, my impressions are down. People got to go. Heads will roll. Can you imagine now if your entire existence is based on this one guy? Can you imagine a world where one person controls the whole town? Can you imagine? Can you imagine such a place where they controlled your job, where they controlled the education system, where they controlled the health care, where they controlled all of the commerce? Can you imagine a place? Could you ever imagine such a place existing? In America, could you ever imagine a place where all of your life's decisions were were decided by one guy? Who would would think such a place could ever exist? Oh, yeah, our history. That's right. Oops, I forgot. Uh, For my listeners in Chicago, you know Pullman Town. You know, George Pullman, you know, the, the Pullman car. Uh, back in the, what, the 1894, when the Depression hit back then, uh, he raised, he cut all, everybody's wages, he cut everybody's hours, did all kinds of draconian things to this utopia he had built. You know, company town, where, you know, you, you paid your rent to the company, you paid your grocery bill to the company, you p- paid your kids' education to the company, you paid your grocery bill, you name everything. Everything went to the Pullman. So when things got a little rough in the economy and Pullman needed a little extra cheese on his Whopper, what did he do? He took it out on the workers. And is that surprising? Of course not. We've seen it throughout history, right not far from where I live. The sweetest place on earth. It's what they build themselves, the sweetest place on earth, Hershey chocolate. Who doesn't love Hershey's chocolate? But Milton Hershey wasn't blankety blank, blank, blank. His workers once had the audacity, the year 1937, come back with me in the Wayback Machine. They had the audacity to say, we'd like better wages, hours, conditions. We'd like to be treated better. How dare they? How dare they? When they went on strike, well, they brought in thugs from New York and they gave them bats, axe handles, whatever they could grab from the the Hershey planing mill, because, again, everything in the town was owned by Milton Hershey, so everything fed into this system of got to make the chocolate. All the people were dependent on the company town, their housing, their everything, everything. So when these people had the audacity to go, we we want better, he was butthurt. He really was. He was. He was pretty unhappy. A little chafe back there and gave these thugs from New York bats to beat the living tar out of these workers. He broke the strike by breaking arms and legs. That's the history of these company towns. You've been listening to the Rick Smith show. Email Rick at Rick at the Rick Smith show.com.
Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Let's go to Columbus, Ohio right now. Welcome one of our monthly guests. That would be Tim Berga, who is president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, ohioafl-cio.org is the website Twitter handle, Ohio AFL-CIO. Lots to talk about today. We're going to start things off talking about transportation, transportation bill. We have one in the Ohio House and obviously one on the national level. Tim Berga, welcome back to the show. What can you tell us uh, what's in this uh, transportation bill? Let's start right there. Go ahead. Yeah, well, thank you, Flash. Good to be with you. Let's start with, um, you know, deregulating the rail industry that happened under the Trump administration either rules that were put in place or rules that were in the process of being finalized that were stopped um, are costly. And Donald Trump was bragging about deregulation in 2018, everything he could get his hands on. And unfortunately, safety is not something that we should be bargaining with. So uh, the East Palestine uh, train derailment, hazardous cargo, environmental disaster, economic disaster has really put a spotlight on this. And we're pleased to report on a couple of items. Uh, one here at the Ohio State House, the uh, transportation budget bill and all the transport, all the budget bills are being debated right now in the State House. The transportation budget bill has been approved by the Ohio House of Representatives in bipartisan fashion. It's House Bill 23, and it includes a couple common sense safety measures, which we've been talking about for a while now. And we're now encouraging your listeners and union members and working people around the state to urge the Ohio Senate to not pull those two provisions out of the transportation safety bill. And we sent out an e-action alert on that um, about a week and a half ago. And folks can get on our e-action alerts by going to our website, ohioaflcio.org, and signing up for them. So that's what's happening here in the State House. And then in Congress, Sherrod Brown has introduced bipartisan uh, legislation that goes even a little bit deeper um, than uh, what's in the Ohio Transportation Budget Bill called the Railway Safety Act. So uh, some good stuff happening, and it's just unfortunate that the tragedy before uh, we can get some bipartisan action. Yeah, I'll tell you, this is a national story. And uh, sadly, <laughs> it's not the only train derailment that we're dealing with. Have, have you been following the news? I mean, there was one in uh, southern Ohio and then I believe one not too far from Sandusky. There was one uh, one worker that was killed, I believe a Cleveland Cliffs worker. There was an accident yeah. happening. I don't know all the details. These are all being investigated right now. But when you look at the bigger picture on this, um, and, and Norfolk Southern, we have to point out, is probably the most profitable of the, the rail companies out there. Is this uh, a pretty good example of corporate greed where they're making a whole lot of money and not investing in their infrastructure, investing in safety. Would you, uh, would you go that far as saying that, Tim? I think you can make the case when you look at Norfolk Southern, they, they had over $3 billion in profits, not revenue profits last year. And they spent $4 billion buying back their own stock. So obviously uh, now they're saying, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that to make things safer. Uh, we're going to we have to legislate it and we have to put it in rule. Uh, 
and we have to hold them accountable. We've had five Norfolk Southern incidents in Ohio just in the last uh, last four months. So there's a big problem, and it's not just Norfolk Southern. It's not just Ohio. It's the rail industry, and it's nationally. So it's time for action. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. The following news article is a service of the Solidarity Center podcast, March 6th, 2023. Brazil, improving labor rights and conditions for migrant workers. The Brazilian Ministry of Labor and Employment, MTE, rescued 39 workers, including children, in February from modern slavery in the state of Santa Catarina. Over half of them were Venezuelan immigrants who had moved to the state via the government's Operation Welcome Program. A construction company enticed the workers through social media posts in Venezuela, offering jobs, building warehouses, and promising good pay, safe work conditions, free housing, and meals for the workers and their families. When the workers arrived, however, they discovered that their housing lacked beds or bathrooms, and they were forced to build their own accommodations, which all of the workers and their families had to share. Meanwhile, none of the workers were provided signed labor documents, which means they were neither formally hired nor had they access to work benefits. Around the world, it is not uncommon for migrant workers to be promised decent work for good wages only to find upon arrival to a new country that they have been tricked. Not unlike the rescued Venezuelans, they often face wage theft, unsafe working conditions, abuse, and exploitation. Since 2018, the Solidarity Center in Brazil has worked to connect migrant workers to unions and strengthen collective action. The migration program raises awareness on the specific struggles of the migrant workers, shares best practices and tools with local union partners to increase migrant affiliation, and promotes social dialogue for the development of local public policies on migration through a labor movement perspective. In recognition of its unique perspective and relationships with partner unions, the Solidarity Center was invited to join a new working group created by the Brazilian Ministry of Justice to discuss and propose a new national migration policy for adoption by the new government. The group held its first meeting March 3rd. In partnership with the Center for Human Rights and Immigrant Citizenship, CDHIC, through the Sindicando Project, the migration program led to the 2022 creation of the National Network of Unions for the Protection of the Migrant Worker, which already has more than 80 members among local unions, national trade union centers, federations, confederations, and global union federations. The program also supported the General Workers Union, UGT Amazonas, branch in the creation of the Venezuelan Association in Amazonas, Asavium, which became a UGT affiliate. As of today, Asavium is the head of the Committee for Migrant and Refugee Policies of Manaus, the capital of Amazonas. 
the Solidarity Center with Brazilian Trade Union Federation, CUTS affiliate, the National Confederation of Construction and Wood Industry Workers, CONTICOM CUT, is working to strengthen union action and confront and combat precarious work through national awareness raising and affiliation campaigns in the combating precarious work in the construction and wood sectors. The project has mapped worker rights issues in the sector. According to CONTICOM, workers' main challenges in the sector are informal hiring, construction companies not providing personal protective equipment and or bathrooms, the lack of government inspections of work sites, wage theft, and harassment, including gender-based harassment. The history of the internet and of pornography are deeply intertwined. They mix and overlap that to see one without the other is to only capture half the picture. And the human desire for sex is often a desire that has driven the development of many of the technologies that underpin modern life. I'm Robbie Waring, and in this episode of the Farewell Podcast, I speak to Dr. Heatherberg, an academic and writer based at Washington University. Heather's work looks at working conditions in the porn industry, and our conversation, recorded last year, looks at the platformerization of sex work and the changing workplace conditions that platforms like OnlyFans have ushered in for workers. And I wonder if we could start off, if you could just describe us a little bit, kind of like um, what it's like for workers in the porn industry? Um, how do they make their living? Um, and what kind of sources of income do they tap into other than um, their kind of form of scene work, the sort of scene work that they undertake? Yeah, well, in some ways, um, the, my first piece of an answer uh, addresses the, the last part of your question, which is to say that there really isn't an industry anymore. The porn industry, as we've you know perhaps traditionally known it, just doesn't exist. There is no cohesive uh, community of performers, producers, uh, studios. Um, during the first years that I was doing field work, um, much of the, the industry, which I think there was a moment when we could still call it that, was still um, kind of consolidated in Southern California in particularly in Los Angeles, um, Las Vegas, in Nevada. And, and so much of that has become diffused. And so with it, um, both the kind of self-regulating capacities of what used to be an industry, but also our ability, you know, as scholars to even like talk about the, the porn industry as a thing. Um, so I think rather than, than a porn industry that we could talk about unified working conditions in, we're looking at a pretty widely dispersed community of more and more um, performers who produce their own content. So what does it look like now to be a porn performer in, in the year 2022? So um, what it looks like to be a porn performer is that performing in porn makes up a really small um, part of your work week, your work day. It can still make up quite a large part of one's work identity. Um, part of that is because of the hierarchy and this um, sense among many civilians, that's to say non-sex workers, but also some sex workers too, and certainly a, a hierarchy in the law. You know, this idea that, that different kinds of sex work um, are hierarchized and not just according to exposure to stigma, but according to criminalization too. 
Um, and so for that reason, a lot of people identify as porn stars or porn um, performers, even if they're doing a whole host of other kinds of sex work. How can we characterize working conditions across the sector? In terms of through lines, um, I think one is, is that's really crucial is that porn workers have always been gig workers. Um, there, there are some limited exceptions of, of folks who had um, annual contracts to perform. Um, and this is really a minority in the industry and is increasingly just obsolete. But, but since the, the dawn of, um, of uh, really small budget um, clip, kind of the early progenitors of the clip, I suppose, um, uh, in the 1950s and 60s to the golden era um, of you know, full-length feature films, um, into the 80s video era and into to the digitization um, that we, we've come to now. Um, porn workers have been gig working. They have been hustling across various sectors. Um, they have, like other gig workers, spent as much time trying to get work as they do actually working, um, insofar as we measure working as, as what's paid. So I think that's the biggest thing. And I think that that, that kind of long historical memory for the experiences of gig work um, means that porn workers are a particularly good community to, to listen to in terms of strategies for, for navigating these conditions. Um, so that includes, you know, just the day-to-day -day conditions of work, the uncertainty, um, constantly having to, to kind of renegotiate one's terms. At Fair Work, we believe all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair management, fair contracts and fair representation. We're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Robbie Waring and our music was composed by Louis Bollet. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works episode features excerpts from a longer interview with cement plant worker Jude Bijarano, who was interviewed by historian Vita Pivo as part of a project documenting the occupational culture of cement workers in Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley. The Lehigh Valley is considered the birthplace of the American cement industry. Its enormous cement plants, like the one in Evansville, where Mr. Bijarano works, are filled with huge, noisy machines. He told us how he started with basic shoveling because, as he said, you always start at the bottom in a cement plant and how he worked his way up to a job in management. Another guy told me, hey, we're not doctors, we're not lawyers, we're just dealing with dust. He goes, it's just dirt. And we mix it up and we bond it together and it's concrete cement, right? He goes. And if you can get that in your mind every time you come to work, that it's just a dust plant, that's all it is, it's a dust plant. And you're just grinding it up. And what is cement, the powder? It's just the dust. He goes, so we're a dust plant. So I use that 
from all the industries that I'm at, I'm always like, or plants that I work at, I'm like, I tell these guys, hey, don't worry, man, we're not doing open heart surgery. We're just working with dust. When you first get out there, you can just feel it on your neck and then in your ears, on your face, in your eyes, in your hair. You don't even know you have it in your hair. You know what I'm saying? You can be walking around and then, like, if you go eat, it'll be falling into your food if you don't blow off, you know, because it's dust. So it can be overwhelming sometimes, but after a while, it's like, it is what it is. You're going to have it on you. So if you're a worker and you're clean, they think you're not doing anything. They think you're not doing it. They think you're hiding on the job. You're running around and you're just messing around or you're talking to somebody else. You better, if you're a worker, you better be getting dirty because that's your reputation too. But it is loud. You, you have to take care of your ears. A lot of these guys are like, yeah, they're a little bit deaf, right? And I'm like, because they've been around it so long. And I tell them like, you guys, you gotta use earplugs. And they'll be like, yeah, we do. I put my earplugs in all the time. And they're like, yeah, same with the PP, the hard hat and everything like that. It kind of all goes together, you know? Some people are like tired or it's getting hot or they're going through a divorce out there in the plant. I listen to them a little bit. You know, I talk to them and I ask them how they're doing. And it's kind of like dealing with different personalities. You know, you know who's really, really quiet so you don't push them and get them to talk all the time, you know? You just ask them how they're doing and go on. Or you got the guy who wants to talk all the time. In this industry, you have to show that you care. Because you can be in the office like me and, you know, you can see me kind of clean. But when it's time to get dirty, or it's time when it's really, really hot, and even though I've been in the AC, they know that I've been in the AC, but if I show up on a job and I stay with them, they value that. Like, Or it's really important because you're here with us, you know, so uh, that's what I see like in my, like with cement workers and in, in in mining in general, but cement workers, if they, you show that you care, they'll do whatever for you, you know, they'll break their backs for you. If somebody listens to this, they, they see, you know, that there's different people at different aspects of people and it's a diverse group, you know, within the cement industry and like, like I told you, that guy told me, why wouldn't you want to work in cement? It's everywhere. You've been listening to Jude Bijarano. To hear his complete interview and interviews with other cement plant workers, as well as hundreds of other contemporary American workers, please visit the library's Occupational Folklife Project at www.loc.gov forward slash folklife, or just search online for the Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, and with special thanks to AFC intern Lisa Alfonso for her help with this episode, thank you for listening to America Works. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. 
We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and produced this week by me and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.